This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good morning, everybody. Few people still coming in, but I think we can kick off. Thank you very much for being here early on day two. Um, lovely to see such a great big crowd. Um, normally this is a little bit of a graveyard shift, so we do appreciate you being here. Um, this is the life insurance session, so if you're not here for the life insurance session, you're in the wrong room and you've still got time to leave. <laughs> um, we've got two, two sort of shorter talks happening today, um, so one from Jenry and uh, one from Liberty. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to have the, uh, the first talk and then allow a little bit of time for questions and then the second talk and then a little bit of time for questions at the end of the second talk. Um, so we'll divide it up like that. So first up we've got uh, Bruce and Lisa Marie who are going to be talking to us about life expectancy. Um, they're both actuaries from Genry. Um, and after following up from yesterday's session about how we're all going to be living longer, um, Bruce and Lisa Marie are going to be sharing some surprising insights about life expectancy, um, which are a little bit counterintuitive. So I'm going to hand straight over to them. Morning, everyone. So the presentation today will be an overview of some of the international mortality trends we have seen. Um, we'll look at a specific few countries and highlight some of the changes we're, that we've seen for those countries and also some of the specific drivers that drove the changes. And then um, we'll move on to the impact of socioeconomic factors. And then finally, what might be the implications for South Africa? So the World Health Organization publishes estimates of life expectancy. And this table just shows a sort of the ranking of the various countries that they include in the estimates. So first up is Japan, followed by Switzerland and Singapore. I've included the United Kingdom and the United States, as those are two countries we'll consider in a bit more detail later. So United Kingdom coming in at 20th place and the United States at 31. And then finally, South Africa quite far down at 151. And just out of interest, uh, the last country on the list that was considered is early home. Also just interesting to sort of note the differences on these life expectancy between the sort of the highest and the lowest countries, um, but 30 years for males, almost 36 years for females. Okay. So why are we talking about this today? And these are some of the headlines that have been seen globally. And the question being asked is, what has happened to life expectancy in the recent years globally, and is the tide turning? So what do we know? A number of countries had strong increases in life expectancy from the early 2000s um, up to about 2011, and some of those countries experienced a slowdown thereafter. And this is not something we really expect to happen in a developed country after so many years of consistent increases in life expectancy. The Office for National Statistics uh, did an analysis on the human mortality database where they, they quantify the impact of some of these changes in life expectancy. They considered the periods 2001 to 2011 and then 2011 onwards up to 2016. Quite interesting to note that the improvement in weeks, how they changed from 13.1 for males to 10.4 and for females from 9.4 to 6.7. So quite a considerable change over these two periods. 
Okay, we're now going to look at um, some specific countries and the trends that we're seeing. And for this, we, we will use some um, graphs that were prepared by our international research team from Genry. Um, they use the Human Mortality Database, um, which is a, a database that contains original calculations of sort of death, uh, death rates and life tables for 41 countries. South Africa is not currently part of this database. And we will plot this against a trend line from 2001 to 2011, which is where the changes started happening. One other thing is, on any study of mortality improvements, um, there is a vast majority of sort of factors to consider, and it's definitely not something we'll cover in a short 20-minute presentation today. Some of you might have attended the session yesterday, the last session yesterday, where this was also discussed, and it's just quite clear how many things have to be taken into consideration, and not the least of which is, for example, the impact in various age groups, which we will not consider in this presentation today. We will be focusing on life expectancy at birth. So the first country we'll look at is Japan. Um, so on the y-axis, you've got the um, life expectancy in um, sort of an age. On the, the, the x-axis are the various years from 2001 to 2017. And the, the dotted line is a trend line from 2001 to 2011, which was just continued into the future years. So Japan had increases in life expectancy, which is quite clear. And you'll see the little blip at around 2011, and that was as a result of the tsunami um, that hit Japan and was followed by a nuclear disaster that many of you will know about. Interesting to note, after that, Japan had very strong increases in life expectancy. It actually exceeded the original trend. Moving on to Germany. So Germany also had increases in life expectancy. Um, they had a bit of a blip in 2013-14 but it seems that on the latest years, they are following the original trend again. Moving on to the UK. Uh, so the UK shows a bit of a different picture. Also had the increases in um, life expectancy over the years. Um, from about 2013, 2014 onwards, it shows a leveling off. And then finally, the U.S. shows a, a different picture. Also had the increases up to about 2011, leveled off. But if you look specifically at, for example, the males, it is clear that there's been reductions in life expectancy. Okay, so as I mentioned, so South Africa is not part of this database, but we, we considered a stats essay. We just wanted to sort of a high-level overview and picture of the trends um, that are projected in South Africa. So from about 2002 to 2005, there were decreases in life expectancy, and this will be mainly due to the, the HIV pandemic, and then strong increases thereafter um, as the, the antiretrovirals were rolled out and the treatment took effect and had its impact on the life expectancy. So the Office of uh, National Statistics I referred to earlier, they also did an analysis on the human mortality database and they, they looked at the sort of average that the increases in life expectancy in weeks between two six yearly periods. So typically the data went that they considered went up to 2015 or 2016. So they considered the, the latest six years versus the previous six years and they showed the, the average weekly changes. So you can see here for Finland, um, the red bars are the most recent six years, and I've sorted the descending order on that way. So Finland, for example, on average of 20 weeks change, 
If you go to Switzerland, the, the, the average increases between the previous six years and the current six years are very similar, but most notable is the UK and the US, and the impact of the changes in life expectancy is very notable there. Moving on to females, and the one thing to notice for the specific countries that was considered in the study, the, the slowdown was much more pronounced for the females. So for example, just looking at the sort of the, the axis on this graph, Finland has a 10-week on average improvement versus the 20-week scene for, for males. So a very different picture for females. But once again, if you go right down the graph to the UK and the USA, um, the, the big changes in the life expectancy in the recent periods are quite obvious. I will now hand over to Bruce, and he'll take you through some of the, the drivers of these changes. Thanks. So for those of you who might have been a bit surprised yesterday in the closing plenary to see how volatile life expectancy is and that it had decreased in some countries over the last few years, or probably hopefully feeling a bit better informed now. So in looking at these results and in kind of what was coming out of all the studies is that we realized that the countries are very, very different and what drives the results in those countries are very, very different. And particularly what we saw is that in the countries where there were sort of blips and then going back onto the curve that Lise Marie showed, so that continuing life expectancy that was often driven by, <clears throat> excuse me, more sort of short-term factors and just kind of the normal volatility we would expect in kind of day-to-day -day mortality studies, I suppose. But whereas the other countries where we saw perhaps a more prolonged flattening out or in, even in the case of the US, an actual decrease, that was being driven more by societal and sort of more uh, structural issues. So we will just do a quick whip through, as Lisa Marie mentioned, it is a short presentation, but just some surprising statistics we found um, which highlight you know, how these different things are, are operating. So this graph here, published by the CMI, shows the standardized mortality ratio weekly um, over time, and what you do see in the light blue line is the long-term seasonal trend. So as I'm sure anyone who's ever looked at uh, mortality rates will know, that you do see quite a strong seasonal effect. Um, but what is particularly pronounced here is the, the blips you see in around 2015, 2014, indicating that the, the winter mortality experience that year was a lot more severe. So this was generally kind of allocated to the, a particularly severe flu season, and also that the flu vaccine in those years were, in, were not particularly effective. So it's always a bit of a guessing game, I think, for the people preparing the vaccine, and they kind of got it a little bit wrong that year. And the, that type of blip up in that mortality, particularly in the older ages, is what was driving the the declines in a lot of the European countries. But obviously, once that flu season kind of came back down to where we expected it to be, everything kind of carried on as usual. Um, what is a more worrying and more interesting thing, particularly in all of the mental health discussions we've seen coming up over, over yesterday, is the, the so-called diseases of despair. And here, um, for no particular reason, we're, we're picking on the US. But, I mean, for those of you who don't know, I mean, the opioid epidemic is pretty much re reaching crisis proportions in the US. So this is actually a, a graph published on the, the burden of opioid mortality as a sort of percentage of all deaths which are attributed to, to opioids in the United States. And as you can see, that massive spike just climbing you know, all the way from 2001 up to 2016, which indicates that almost 20% of deaths for those aged between 25 and 34 is now actually attributed to opioid uh, overdoses. And I mean, that is just a, a massive thing. Um, it's not really confined to the U.S., but it does seem to be, you know, it, it is affecting Western Europe as well, but the U.S. seems to have it particularly severe. And, I mean, if you look at some of the, the numbers of terms of 
uh, number of prescriptions issued per 100 population, it is really quite startling, quite alarming, and obviously, if that does have the potential to spread to, to other countries, it will be quite severe. Um, and along a similar line, we also see uh, huge increases in the number of suicides. So again, I know this was highlighted yesterday as well. The, you can see here the, the suicide rate, um, very, very high prior to, to World War II. And then generally since then, we've actually seen a steady decline, I mean, from the late 1980s all the way down to the early 2000s. You see in the US the suicide rate pretty much kind of going down steadily, but ever since then, generally around all of the economic problems they've been having and generally I think the, the overall global climate, we've been seeing a, an increase again. And I mean, it's now at levels almost not seen since I mean, the, the 1950s. And obviously, I mean, this is not confined to the US, they just happen to have great data, but as we've heard, mental illness, you know, across disability, across all kind of every factor of life insurance, these types of things are having an impact. Of course, no, no presentation on uh, long-term factors would be complete without uh, overweight or obesity statistics. So as we heard yesterday, this has a pronounced impact on both disability and mortality. And I mean, I think we all understand that the, you know, the, the obesity epidemic or whatever you would like to, if you would like to refer to it as that, um, is, you know, affects the United States and Western Europe. But, and you can see those are the top two lines starting off at the highest level in, in 1990, but pretty much globally it, it is increasing. So you've even got, you know, Africa's there getting up towards 30% and very sharp increases across the globe. So, again, yesterday we talked a little bit about inequality, or we heard more about inequality. This is of particular relevance to South Africa, and I think it's particularly interesting, I think, that most of us here or, you know, would see Western Europe or the UK as, as very, uh, very equal countries, by, certainly by African and South African standards. But even there, they are seeing differences in, you know, between eight and almost ten years in the case of females. Um, between the most deprived and the least deprived communities. And I mean, that is with a national health system. That is with, you know, a much narrower income gap. So that is quite alarming. And actually what they are seeing is that for the most deprived groups, there have been almost no, no gain in life expectancy. And yeah, here again, you can see the, the impact of austerity in, in Europe. So the graph on the, on the right there is a little bit confusing, so it takes me a while to, to get my head around it. It was published in The Lancet. So... On the y-axis, you've got the, the government spending per capita on healthcare, and on the, on the x-axis, you've got mortality. So a line sort of going down from top left to bottom right indicates, the, indicates that basically as government spending decreases, mortality increases. And I mean, that's exactly what we saw ever since the, uh, the big Greece uh, austerity measures. So from 2009 all the way down to 2014, you are seeing massive increases in mortality along with the uh, the cuts in government spending, and the particularly, uh, I don't want to use the word emotive, heartbreaking term, but what they saw in the, the causes of death here was that actually a lot of these were related to treatable infant diseases. Um, so it's not just purely at the old ages, it's actually, you know, even in a developed country such as Greece, there's a very marked uh, increase in mortality related to cuts in government spending. And, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, they also saw, I mean, just as one other example, they cut their... Um, they have needle exchange programs for intravenous drug users, and they actually saw a, a doubling of their HIV incidence rates over that period as well, just purely related to that. So that is something that we would also expect to see coming through in the mortality. Again, obviously it takes a while, but uh, that's going to be there for some time. So just to give you a further idea of the impact of inequality, this is some causes of death data split by the, uh, the World Bank Income Group. 
And as you can see, I mean, we would expect, you know, cardiovascular diseases and cancers are the, the biggest killers worldwide. But when you start looking at the, the, the next biggest killers, you can start to see that there are massive differences in the burden of mortality associated with, you know, infectious and parasitic diseases, uh, deaths related to childbirth, and respiratory infections in the lower income countries. And that's why we do see such a much higher impact of inequality in that effectively these are all preventable diseases, um, which you know, on the plus side does indicate that in these lower income countries there are huge potentials for improvement as you address these causes. But you know, it does just show the, the sheer scope of the inequality in terms of access to medical treatment. Okay, so I'll hand over to Lise Marie to take you through some implications for South Africa. Uh, thank you, Bruce. So all the statistics that you saw um, in Bruce's slides, that's, that's great. A lot of them focused on the, the UK and the United States, and they've, they've got data available to do this kind of analysis. We do know South Africa is different. Uh, data quality is a problem, yeah. Um, so, for example, in data quality, there are questions around completeness. Um, we know the population data is not complete in terms of the reporting. Uninsured data does get better but also not always in all the cases. And then moving on to some of the other implications that all of the, the, these um, sort of graphs that Bruce showed might mean for South Africa is, is that around HIV. Um, so we know HIV had a big impact on South Africa and that both the death rates we have seen together with the improvements and related to that is that a, a lot of the improvements are still being overshadowed by what is seen just on the HIV uh, deaths. So Bruce showed also some graphs, uh, graphs on austerity and what funding, uh, the impact of funding was on some of the other countries. And we do know funding has an impact on things like access to facility, screening, prevention, and also awareness of disease. Um, and we would always, everyone would be aware that there is a proposal currently for NHI in South Africa. And so the impact of that is yet to be seen and what that would mean for, for mortality and life expectancy in South Africa. So we're all currently the way there, there's quite a big difference between the, the public and the private healthcare offering at this stage. So moving along, we also asked the question, what could the impact of government campaigns be? And the reason we look specifically at government campaigns, it's something that could have a quite a big impact on mortality and in some in cases in also quite a short time span. So looking, for example, at South Africa, a government campaign that had an impact was the, the, the rollout of antiretrovirals to HIV-positive people. And the impact of that can simply be seen from the, the stats essay graph that I showed earlier. Together with that, there was also the Love Love campaign, which created awareness around the disease. But also looking globally, in Spain, for example, there was a road safety initiative which aimed to re reduce road accident deaths by 40% between 2004 and 2008. This campaign was actually very successful, and uh, due to the reduction in mortality rates, it actually led to insurers changing the rates they need to sort of apply on pricing of insurance products. Similarly, moving to Russia, um, so Russia is a country with quite high alcohol consumption, and the, the authorities there uh, introduced laws to cut alcohol use and they managed to, to reduce use by 43% between 2003 and 2016. And these control measures were credited with the fact that Russia managed to get to a life expectancy high in 2018. Sort of just, just pointing to, to what the impact of such a potential future campaign can be. 
On to lifestyle, so Bruce has shown the impact of lifestyle factors and things like uh, drug abuse, uh, obesity, suicides, and uh, what that meant for some of the, the global countries. And the question we will ask is, what is the potential future impact of that for South Africa? And also looking specifically at something like mental health, it's something that came up in a lot of presentation yesterday. And I think one of the big questions being asked in the industry at the moment is, what is the potential future impact of mental health on mortality and the trends we will see? Finally, moving on to inequality. Um, so a big consideration for South Africa. And looking at something like the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of inequality, um, where zero means complete equality, one means complete inequality, um, the World Bank produ produces a, a sort of estimates for various countries, and South Africa comes out at the highest at the moment at, um, of their estimates at 0.63. Um, and what does that mean? That means we're dealing with extremely diverse population in terms of inequality, and we will see just those impacts coming through in socioeconomic classes. So we do expect mortality in the highest versus the lowest socioeconomic groups to be very different. Um, for example, in, uh, in 2011, some of my colleagues at January were involved in publishing a paper that, uh, that investigated the mortality of the working life population specifically, and that they found quite big differences between the socioeconomic groups that they chose and then the highest and the lowest. And for example, the, the ratio was around eight for females and 6.7 for males, implying that uh, moving from the highest to the lowest socioeconomic class for females led to a, a sort of eight times um, higher mortality, age-standardized mortality rate. And what else do we know? We know the population has seen mortality improvements. That was clear from the graphs earlier. A lot of that relates to the HIV impact that we've seen. There is a lot of questions being asked in the industry about what is happening on the insured life's book. Um, we have internally con uh, considered our sort of reinsurance book, which is uh, quite a unique subset of the, the insured market out there. It, it considered a specific portfolios and the sort of the working life ages. But on those results, we saw a leveling off of mortality improvements over the recent years. So we have also been asking that question. And then finally, in conclusion, I think South Africa uh, is and remains a very interesting country in terms of insurance, and I think that will certainly apply to mortality and the trends we will see going forward around this as well. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, we have time for a few questions. So I think there's some roving, roving mics around. And um, please just remember, if you're going to ask a question, to start by introducing yourself. Any questions? Otherwise, I'm going to kick off. <laughs> um, so guys, um, obviously when you're doing things like annuity pricing, what you're worried about is you're worried about the future trend. So what's your sense here? Is it a short-term um, blip in life expectancy improvements, or do you think we're actually seeing some sort of structural change in the pace of improvements? Yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think annuity pricing, I mean, one of the, I mean, as Lisa Marie alluded to in, in the opening, is that you're generally looking at, uh, you know, a, a conditional survival. So, you know, that someone who's already reached age 65, whatever the case may be. So I think there we would still see, I mean, this is now obviously not covered in our talk, but I mean, I think we would still expect to see improvements because, I mean, as I mentioned, a lot of those structural factors like the overdoses, the suicides, 
those types of factors actually are operating in the, um, in, in the lower age groups. And obviously at the lower age groups, they do have an outsized effect on life expectancy. So the number of years lost is significantly higher. But yeah, I mean, I think if we were, I mean, on the reinsurance side, we don't see much annuity pricing. So <laughs> I'm glad not to have that problem. But I think it is, yeah, I mean, we, we do still see improvements there. I mean, I don't think anyone's predicting a leveling off of old age mortality for people who have already reached that age. I mean, obviously, the, you know, like we saw, the flu season does have a, can cause those temporary blips, but I think that's exactly what we expect them to be. Cool, thank you. Um, any other questions? Everybody's still asleep this morning. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you. Oh, there we go. One in the front here. Hi, I'm, I'm Jason. I'm from Vitality. And I was wondering, so this was um, life expectancy at birth. Do you have a similar view of life expectancy, say, from age 65, and how the trends have changed there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is covered in some of the, the studies we referenced. Um, I don't have those statistics uh, in my head, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I think it is a, there we do still continue to see improvements just because a lot of those factors which had that outsized effect, you know, like I say, the, you know, the, particularly in the US, the, the opioids had a, had a massive, you know, it's particularly wide effect of the males. You know, you saw that, that graph, it's, it's hitting the, the 25 to 35 year olds. Um, and in South Africa as well, so I think a lot of your HIV AIDS mortality is out by that point. Um, but I mean, South Africa, we do still see a big, um, a big seasonal effect. Um, so I mean, on, especially on some of the, you know, we do see the seasonal effect being quite heavily differentiated by socioeconomic factors. So I mean, I think there the potential for bad flu seasons and that type of thing to, to really adversely affect the elderly, particularly in the lower income groups, is, is still there. But I mean, yeah, on most of the insured book that we see above 65, I think it is, yeah, we still expect to see improvements. Thanks. <clears throat> Anybody else? There's one at the back there. Hi, I'm Colin Hamilton from Old Mutual. D just um, a question for you, Bruce, on that graph you showed of the government expenditure versus the mortality rates. In the earlier, earlier years, there was an increase in expenditure, but, but increasing rates. What, what are the drivers of that? I think it was up till about 2010. Yeah, I mean, you can see there was, unfortunately, that graph scale is also a bit truncated. I think you'll see if you uh, don't have it in front of me. But so, I mean, we're not entirely sure what drove that. So, I mean, we do know there is a bit of a lag effect as well on, on government spending and, you know, the effects on population mortality. Um, obviously, that is also crude death rate. So you will see the effects of a, um, of a population, of an aging population as well. The... I mean, the one explanation we do have, I mean, if you look at the graph, you'll see everything's clustered quite close together, so you will still see that, that volatility that results in the spending and that type of thing. So I think what, I mean, we did, we did notice that, is, you know, you wouldn't expect to see that kind of inverted J, um, which is the odd thing. Um, but yeah, I think the scale there does tend to make it look a bit odd, and the, the kind of the clustering you do see is it tends to be some years up, some years down, but then just from the 2009 onwards, you do just see that, that very, very marked trend. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, I think it's time to move on to, to our next section. Um, so next up, we've got uh, Bina and Sean, um, who are both actuaries at Liberty with a specific interest in technology. 
Um, and I think um, it's been interesting to see at this convention how many talks we've had around data science and uh, advanced analytics. Um, I think what's quite cool about what Sean and Bean are going to be talking about today is that they, they're going to be talking about how to apply some of those new modern techniques in a more real-world, traditional actuarial sense. So I'm going to hand over to Bina and Sean. Thanks, Anne. Good morning, everyone. Um, so if we take a bit of a step back and look at technology trends and how they're impacting professionals. Over the past couple of years, what we've seen is we've seen a massive explosion in big data. But coupled with that, we've actually also seen a big increase in the usage of open source programming languages. So if you look at the, at the graph on the left here, you'll see a plot of the growth rates of popular programming languages that are used by maths and science professionals. And what you'll notice is you've got programming languages like Python and R by far outstripping vended solutions like MATLAB. Now, why is this happening? In my opinion, there are three factors that I think are driving this, um, driving this increase. The one is the easy, easy, easy access, so you can literally just go and download them off the internet. The second one is that they're really easy to learn. I mean, you can pick up free courses and that and learn how to program in R and Python pretty quickly. But I think one of the fundamental drivers of it is actually the universe of libraries that support these open source programming languages. So on the right here, what you can see is we've just kind of put a picture up of all the open source libraries that, you, that support Python. Well, not all of them, but a big chunk of them. Um, and this makes it really, really powerful for maths and science professionals to use. I mean, in particular, the ones that are particularly popular, I mean, relevant to us is, is NumPy. NumPy is a maths and statistical lang uh, library, which effectively comes prepackaged with a whole lot of uh, functionality in it. The other one that's also um, relevant maybe to the sciences more is SciPy, which, I mean, which is very popular among engineers and, and physicists. So where is the actuarial profession with regards to this? Um, and when I'm talking here, I'm not talking about the wider fields in terms of big data analytics, because I think there's a lot of, of use of these programming languages and technology for big data analytics. But if we go call back into our traditional areas, such as the life valuations where I work, what you'll find is that most of the life valuation areas are still using old technology. These technologies are predominantly developed by vendors, so you've got a handful of vendors which are supplying this technology. And what ends up happening is we end up putting all our IP, our product IP, our valuation IP, into these vendor solutions, which means you get locked into these solutions. For anyone who's worked long enough in evaluations area, I think one of the kind of the, the, the banes of working in the evaluations area is to go through a software migration. I mean, I've been through a few, they are, are, are hectic. And in addition, what happens is, is because these solutions have kind of grown organically over time, they, lend, they seem to be a bit clunky. So the processes in that kind of aren't smooth and automated and efficient, and there tends to be an over-reliance on Excel, which has its limitations. From a skills perspective, a lot of our skills and a lot of our training is very much focused on the technical and theory of being an actuary. 
which is good. That's what it needs to do, um, because without it, you, that's the core of being an actuary. However, there's very little focus of how to take that theory and translate it into the real world using new technologies. So I know there has been some strides and some kind of courses are introducing R in that, but but when we see grads coming into our area, we have to spend a lot of time in terms of training on how to code and how to do implementations. I mean, to be honest, I mean, why are we still using computation factors? I mean, I've been working in the industry for 15 years and I've never had to practically use a computation factor. So what are we doing about this and how are we moving ourselves into this new world? So what we've looked at is what is the big catalyst for change in a life valuation actuary's world? And, that's, and that has to be IFRA 17. So what we've done at Liberty is we've used um, open source technology as part of our IFRA 17 solution. And I'll take you quickly through what we've done. So on the, on the left here, what we have is our, our data sources and the, our actuarial cash flow models. Now, in our world, that actually hasn't changed a lot. We haven't actually had to make a lot of changes to our cash flow models. And on the, on the right here, what you've got is your finance and your reporting world, which is kind of outside of the traditional actuarial scope. But in the middle is where the big changes have. And mainly, it's the introduction of the contractual service margin, your risk adjustment, and the expense allocation engine. And this is where we've used open source technologies to solve it. So what we've done is underpinning the whole kind of solution is Hadoop. Now, Hadoop is an open distributed framework. It's a database with kind of tools around it. That, very interesting, is basically a framework that was developed by Google to power their search engine. So what you've got here is you've got an open, uh, open source database that's been developed by one of the, by the one biggest tech companies in the world underpinning your solution. That's great. You've got a kind of a big data database, but you've got to get data into it. So what we've chosen, we've chosen Apache NiFi, now, Apache NiFi is also open source technology. Interestingly enough, it was originally developed by the American National Security Agency to basically spy on everyone. So effectively, you, they made this open source in 2014, and you can effectively now use this as part of any data solution that, you, that, that you're using. Now, that's all very nice and well, but those two components aren't very actuarial components. You need IT professionals to implement it. I mean, actually, NIFI is actually really easy, so you could actually get actuaries to, to implement it, but it's not really where you want to deploy your actuarial skill set. Where we think the game changer is, is in PySpark. So what is PySpark? PySpark is basically Python, so you've got the ease of Python plus those libraries, but it enables you to work on top of a big data database. So what you've basically done is you've opened the world to the actuaries of big data. It's, you've got big data that you can easily code up and, and, and use. On top of this, we've actually also put a scheduler. The, what the scheduler does is it's actually, it, it's there to kind of run, kind of do your jobs, run, stop, kind of monitor, debug. What it actually enables to do is people that, who are not developers or not coders can actually set off and run and monitor what's going on in this whole environment. 
Interesting thing about the airflow as a, as a, as a tool, it was developed by Airbnb. It's currently used to do their bookings across the world. And again, they've made it open source, so anyone can basically use it and contribute to it as well. So in summary, what do we have here? In summary, we have an IFRA 17 solution, which is basically been using technology that's been developed by some of the biggest and best technology companies in the world. And I mean, to give you an idea, we reckon it took us about six to eight months to get the solution up and running, with probably two software developers, three actuaries putting this together. So you can see the amount of time, I mean, it's fairly, in my opinion, fairly short time to get a world-class solution up like this. Thanks, I'll hand over to Bina. Okay, hopefully people can see me. I can't really move this thing much. Um, okay, I'm gonna move on to just our experiences with vendor solutions and open source um, that we went through. So some of the advantages that we found by using vendor solutions is that there's no need to develop calculations from scratch. So something like your IFRA 17 implementation in particular is a lot simpler because you don't have to interpret the standard and go through a lot of methodology development and sign-offs. In addition, the vendor solutions also go through a lot more extensive reviews and it's quite likely that the audit firms have already reviewed these solutions, which probably makes your audit process a lot simpler than developing a solution from scratch. Some of the main disadvantages we found with the vendor solutions is that they are quite immature and put delivery timelines at risk. So when we were considering our options between vendor and open source last year, many of the vendors were still busy with their development for IFRA 17, which meant that we would only have started this year with a large part of the open, uh, IFRA 17 implementation. Vendor solutions also only work if you can get the data in the right amount of granularity and in the correct format. So depending on the data that's available within your organization, using a vendor solution is simpler from a calculation perspective but may require extensive development um, from a data perspective. Okay, moving on to our experience on open source. So, the main advantage we found on open source technology is that the younger actuaries are quite keen to get involved and learn these new technologies and coding languages. Something like IFRA 17 and other regulatory programs are usually seen as quite boring and people are hesitant to get involved. But given that we're actually developing in these new technologies environments, it was actually easier for us to get buy-in from some of the younger actuaries to start coding and help us develop the solution. In terms of training, it's a lot simpler because everything's available online and people can do it at their own pace and in their own time. So what we did is we trained people up as they got involved in the IFRA 17 project and we mainly use courses available on Coursera and Udemy, which means there's no reliance on external providers, again, coming in and being restricted from a timeline and perspective. These courses are actually quite cheap, so all the courses we've done have been less than 200 rand per course, which means it also helps our budgeting processes. Um, 
Sean discussed the power of PySpark from a coding language perspective, but the other thing that we found is by coding in PySpark, it actually makes it quite easy to migrate from one environment to another. So we initially developed our IFRA 17 solution on the on-premise environment, and subsequently the company has a strategy to move into the cloud. So we've actually kicked off our project to start migrating our environment to the cloud. And what we found is that our actuarial scripts actually require very minimal development. So I'm sure that most users in the room here have gone use Profit and Moses and those sorts of applications, and we all dread the upgrade, so I can't imagine having to recode our entire Profit model into a new language. So I think this is quite a big advantage that we've found through this technology. Some of the main disadvantages we found is you still need a strong IT team to support these technologies and make sure that you're able to use them. Um, and this turned out to be quite challenging for us last year, given the limited skills available in South Africa. However, this can be mitigated using cloud solutions. I guess PySpark and open source solutions only work if people are continuously con contributing and improving these sorts of languages. So I think the biggest challenge we face is if people stop contributing to these sorts of languages and something like PySpark dies. We have already started to see the benefit of open source in our environment, but I think we'll only fully realize the benefit for traditional valuations area if we start building actuarial libraries which do basic cash flow models and start integrating it into our actual valuation processes. So what does this mean for us as a profession? So we could either continue waiting for vendors to try and keep up, or we can embrace new technology as a profession and ensure that we remain relevant. I think in order for us to stay relevant as a profession, we need to invest in skills in order to move ourselves away from these traditional solutions to, more, to use more new technologies and open source solutions. And from what Sean's presented, you can see that the maths and science professions have already started using these and implementing the open source technology. So us as an actuarial profession are already on the back foot when it comes to implementing new technologies. So what we need to do is start an actuarial community and invest in order to de develop actuarial libraries that can be used for basic cash flow modeling in evaluations area. By developing these open source technologies, it will enable all actuaries within, this, within the life area to have easy access to the new world. So who is ready to join us in ensuring that we remain relevant as a profession. Thank you very much, Bina and Sean. Um, do we have any questions for, for this team um, over there? My name is Pula from Liberty. Um, Bina, I've got two questions for you, if I can sneak both of them in. Um, the first one is where you mentioned that uh, one of the shortcomings with uh, the project you've been driving has been that um, it still requires a, str a strong IT team to, to support you. And, and you said that that can be mitigated through migration 
of the solutions onto the cloud. I'm interested in, in knowing um, how the cloud uh, mitigates this reliance of, on, on a strong IT team. The second one um, is on open source um, actuarial libraries. Um, I agree that uh, I think open source is the future because it allows the great minds in the world who are interested in the same solution to band together to create uh, solutions that can help everyone. Um, however, I do foresee um, challenges in, in convincing corporates who, who may want to hold on to their uh, intellectual property um, to convince them that this is actually a good thing in the long run. Have you given any thought to that constraint? Because I think it, it is one that will have to be, to be considered if we want to make uh, actuarial li libraries open source. I'm going to take the first question and then pass over to Sean on the, the second one. So in terms of what we found from a cloud perspective and where our challenges were was on an on-premise on environment, we found that we were running out of space and we didn't have the capacity to actually run the calculations at the speed we needed. And the team didn't have the skills or didn't, we didn't have a big enough team to, to manage that. What we're finding through implementation on the cloud is it's a lot easier to scale up your environment. I mean, it's then just a cost, a budgeting game at the end of the day, is you can just pay for more resources. So you still need some IT teams to support you from a cloud, but that reliance on a team to manage your infrastructure, make sure that your network connectivity and those things are working sort of is mitigated by moving to a cloud. Hoping that answers your first question. On, on, on the second question, um, I think I think it's, it's a bit of a mind shift um, change. So firstly, I think we as a profession need to have a mindset change and see this as something that we need to be, stay relevant in a very competitive world. Um, because if, if we're not going to do it, someone else is going to do it and effectively just we, we're going to become irrelevant. From a corporate perspective, corporates I also think need to think about things differently. I mean, if you take, for example, Airbnb, I mean, Airbnb developed something and they made it open source. Um, clearly what these corporates are doing, though, is that when they deem it not to be a competitive advantage, they make it open source. So, so you're generally not going to find the latest and greatest that Google's using out in the, uh, out in the world. But effectively, you've got to be very... There's a, there's a lot of... There's more than just... Um, there's a lot of marketing and other benefits you get by taking stuff that you've developed and allowing other people to, to, to use it. So I do think it is a mind shift change and I don't think it's something that's traditionally in the South African corporate or even the financial institutions um, mind, but I definitely think it's the future of where you need to go to, to stay relevant. And it's about building these base foundations. And these base foundations aren't, um, aren't your competitive advantage anymore code and that is becoming is becoming commoditized. So we've got to have those layers to be, being commoditized so that you can leapfrog other industries um, yeah, competitively. Um, Peter Carswell from Medbank Insurance. First up, um, Sean and Bina. I'm a little jealous of what you guys have done. It looks amazing. Well done. Um, just want to echo your point. Uh, my iPhone 17 solution is not 
something that is a competitive advantage and anyone who's trying to sell that to you probably works for a consulting firm. Um, <laughs> which is, I think, one of the areas where you might start to see some competition because PwC would like to still sell you a spreadsheet that costs a million and a half rand. Um, and this sort of thing is going to stop that. So um, I am interested in how you would like to progress this because I am very much a, you know, a proponent of the idea of let's get more open source, let's get more of the intellectual power harnessed so that we stop reinventing 17,000 wheels in this country because you know, it's an annuity, we know how to value the damn thing, let's do it. The real IP comes in, what's your mortality table, what do you believe the mortality improvements are going to be? Yeah, let's have, and I don't know about you, I'd much rather spend time focusing on those problems rather than looking and going, why doesn't my PVFP you know, give me a zero set of cash flows when I put the, you know, the reserving and projection cash flows the same? Yeah, um, so interested to know how you, would, how you would like to see this thing progress. How would we, I mean, is this something which we try and get asked to provide some oversight? Is this something where we set up as a special interest group on the side? Yeah, how do we do this? Um, and then the last one, just to throw the grenade at you, R versus Python. Why Python? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I definitely feel that the right way to progress this is, is within the society. So I do think we need to set something up, uh, be it a subcommittee or something, of a group of people who are passionate about this. And it has to be, it has to be a, a community that's prepared to contribute, because these things only work if you've got a whole lot of contributors contributing um, uh, to it. So, so that would be my recommendation, to see if we can actually set this up um, as, part of, uh, as part of a society. Um, R versus Python, we did think about it and do go through it. Um, actually, I mean, fundamentally, R is a, actually a statistical program that's kind of morphed more into a programming language, whereas Python is a programming language which morphed more into kind of mathematical sciences. So we felt actually there's a lot more that you can, you can do with, with R. So, for example, in the NIFI, NIFI it does all your data orchestration, but underpinning it is, is Python. So what's quite nice is that your actuaries can read the Python code, and if they're worried about where the data came from, they can just quickly read, okay, that made sense, right? So we just felt it was universally a bit more powerful. Um, there we go, yeah. Uh, Ken Schumann from Old Mutual. Uh, ben, a question for you. I was just interested in your comment that you made that you encountered a shortage of the required IT skills uh, in this country for, uh, for, for the strategy. Could you elaborate? just briefly on what, what IT skills those are and whether that's currently an obstacle to this proposal. Um, so what we found is that, as Sean mentioned, the NIFI solutions and the Hadoop solutions to get the data into the database, we actually used IT professionals to do that. And what we found is there were very few good developers that actually have worked previously in Hadoop and could do it quite seamlessly. So we went through a few before we found one that actually actually worked and he's, he's doing quite well now. So I think it was just more from a resourcing perspective is that we were struggling to find to, consultants to help us with the right quality of skill in order to get the data in. Um, and because we did, we did overcomplicate some parts of the, the solution, so things like our data changes on a regular basis. So one of the complexities we added is we built the process such that we wouldn't need to change the code every time um, we add new columns to the data set. And what you found is that a lot of the developers were 
quite good at importing data sets and things like that that don't change or don't change frequently and require development, whereas you start adding complexity where you want this thing to be quite flexible. Um, we were struggling with people from a skill set perspective. I think in general there's a lot of people that are talking about kind of big data solutions but there's in the IT world but there's actually uh, we found there's a handful that can actually do proper implementations of them particularly in in, in South Africa but um, our view is that it's changing I mean there's a massive drive to these solutions there's a massive drive to cloud solutions throughout the country um, so it's a it's a, it's about a, it's it's it's, it's time to actually, it's actually, to actually get there. Um, um, and we are seeing a lot of new, um, actually a lot of new exciting options in terms of smaller f um, IT firms that are starting to provide these type of services. If you feel, it's very unlikely that you're gonna be able to get it out of your big financial institutions in-house IT um, shop where predominantly they're worrying about legacy applications and how to keep this thing running. One at the back there. Hi, uh, thanks for a great um, presentation. It's uh, it looks really exciting, and I'm glad that this is potentially the first step in in moving to a more open actuarial world. Um, on the point of IT, just thinking off the cuff, I'm hoping that is a short game as well, because the thing with vended solutions is it's always going to be profit exists, and it's only ever SunGuard is going to be able to support this. But these things are generic building blocks that are the same for us and for Airbnb and for everybody else. So hopefully, the IT uh, fraternity will catch up and have generic people who can support insurance and other industries in that space. Um, so I didn't say my name, I'm Semi de Clark, I work for Old Mutual. My company has old in the name, it shows in our IT policies. Uh, can, you talk <laughs> uh, can you talk about how you got your corporate comfortable with using open source technologies where there aren't contracts and aren't people signing SLAs about support and things like that? I must admit, I mean, I have to give credit to our CIO. Our CIO is very supportive of this and is very driving in terms of that. And, and actually, he, I mean, his view is that he's seen this as, as one of the stepping stones to try and transform a lot of the IT within, within the company. So he's keen to get people on board in that. So it does help when you've got an executive that is supportive of the program. There were lots of hands on this side and one on the, one there, so maybe let's start on that side. Uh, Colin van der Meulen, um, at a relatively advanced stage in my career, I ventured into the world of R. Um, I must say I've enjoyed it. I found it easy to get to grips with, so anyone who hasn't done that, uh, don't be fearful. If I can do it, anyone can do it. What I found interesting with R, I didn't look at Python, although it was recommended to me as being better. Uh, but I ventured into R and I have found a lot of actuarial software available, particularly uh, on the short-term insurance side from the states with very credible uh, experts in, in incurred but not reported claims reserving, uh, people who are well known throughout the, the industry and so I found that also very, very helpful, very easy to implement, very easy to apply. The biggest problem was actually getting data in and out. I found that to be quite messy. Thank you. Um, I think there were a few hands in that sort of area. Thank you. And then there's one over here. Hi, Colin Hamilton again. Um, my question is more coming from a, a non-programming person. How, um, and I, I think um, the other Colin's 
comments about R probably probably answer it a lot. How easy is Python to debug and maintain and document? Because if if if, if you certainly if you don't document what you've done, it, it's probably very difficult. Um, to understand what's been done in, in the past and make changes where necessary. Yeah, I, th I think that's and I think that's true with, with any programming language. If you don't document it, it's going to be a, a mess. So, so effectively, you, you've got to employ um, standard kind of programming etiquette, programming um, disciplines. Um, a matter of fact, you can. I mean, my view, you can take the world's best programming language and you can have a terrible implementation. You have to, when you're doing any sort of development, it has to be rigorous. You have to make sure you're documented. You must have a proper review process, a proper software development cycle. So, so my sense is that, is that all of that stuff is necessary. If you put it in place, then, the stuff, then it should be relatively easy to, to work through it. And there's a one there and one here. Hi, Sean. Um, it's Paul. I'm from PwC. I just have a question. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to comment about that spreadsheet. It seems, it seems like quite a reasonable price. Um, I'm more interested in why you picked the, the software you did. Um, given that I mean, something like uh, Visual Studio is free under your Microsoft license. It's one solution. You could do all that functionality. It's probably more robust. It can really host on the cloud, um, on Azure, and you can back up to your SQL database. So just, and there's a lot more developers available to assist on that. So I'm just curious on how did you pick those specific ones? Um, I mean, to be honest, we did, I mean, it was a bit of research, but it was also, um, we did actually do some pilots. So we did do some tests with um, SQL Server and stuff like, and versus, um, versus Hadoop. Um, and to be honest, it kind of went hands down. I mean, to, to give you an idea, we, had, we, had, we actually had um, developers come in and say, well, let's take, let's take the Hadoop kind of distributed environment, let's take a SQL Server environment, and let's try and get just the data in. We had finished getting the data in and we were in a process where we were starting to do the calcs and we hadn't even started to get the, the amount of data in, in, into the SQL environment. So, so it was just, just running the pilot, it was just a clear winner and, and I mean, I've always been a proponent in, of, of moving forward with technology in that and, and I've always also read a lot about the hype in it, but when we physically saw the, the, the power that you could get out of Python with, with Hadoop, it's just, in, our, in my opinion, it's just light years ahead of what kind of you can do with, with, with the Microsoft or the standard SQL um, implementation. It's just not comparable. There's a question over here that's been waiting for a while. Okay, so let's do that one and then can we get this gentle mic, please? Right. Um, hi there, it's my Andre here from Sunlam. I've been enjoying, I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, particularly your slide where you showed basically the entire sort of process of getting data in, running through the processes and getting your results. And how you found really powerful open source sort of solutions for each component of that. 
Um, the one thing I was just thinking about is that for each of those open source solutions, there are corresponding sort of commercial solutions, which companies are currently buying into. And um, there are some good reasons why they go commercial, um, because they are maybe more efficient, especially, and they bought into that because maybe some open source solutions couldn't handle the amount of data in the time frames that they wanted, so they had to get something that was really efficient. And that's how this company sort of got there, uh, well, is doing their business. So do you see, because I really like the idea of where this is going, but do you see practical limitations where some of these open source sort of solutions won't be able to sort of replicate what the commercial solutions can do and then uh, it makes it more difficult to have a completely open source chain from data to results? Um, I guess no. I do think you could probably replicate whatever you wanted from a, from a, from a, a um, commercial solution. I guess, I mean, when you're going down the street, I mean, the, the decision you've got to make is how much do you want to build yourself? Um, so, so clearly, if you go to one of the big kind of vendor solutions, you, you, what, you, what you're going there is you're saying, well, I'm going to buy the IFRA 17 logic off the shelf. Right? I'm not going to have to worry about it, um, which is kind of what we highlighted is here you've got to worry about the logic behind it. But, but I still feel that we've been a slave a little bit unto these, these, these vended solutions because it goes back to the point. Is there for 17 a competitive advantage? No. Yet you're going to put, lay down a whole lot of money to be able to do it. Um, whereas I think if we very quickly got together as an actuarial community and said, well, how are we going to solve this and solve it once as a community, the, the, the scale benefits for the industry would be massive. Um, and for us as a profession, and, and I don't think you're giving away any IP. Um, hi there, my name is Jan Paul Skuman. I'm from Momentum Metropolitan. Um, I've got a fair amount of valuations and modeling experience. Um, yeah, thanks for the presentation. I think it's a very good presentation, and um, I agree with you in terms of the. Um, if you want to push ahead with this um, in terms of um, getting um, open source um, out there, probably has to be driven from the, like within the society and I'm, I'm more than willing from my perspective to join such a movement if you want to call it. Um, I just want, I've got two comments on the, on the slide that you showed and highlighted the, um, the open source um, uh, kind of choices that you've made in terms of implementation. Um, I think uh, the bigger picture is on the on the outside fringes and, and how those integrate. So I think the, the the real picture is how good is your data sources, you know, how good are your your actual underlying models and how they how do your accounting systems look like? So the your, your IFRA solution is not necessarily the solution that others would be able to implement because the the quality and the flows of those other boxes that you need to connect to can be very different. So I think that's just an observation. Um, the, the, the comment that I wanted to make was um, the, the challenge with um, open source cash flow modeling is I think you can at best make it uh, only generalized. Um, the product features within companies are very different per product. So it will inevitably um, lead into a situation that companies would have to take the, the open source library and still have some element of customization to allow for very product specific features. So I'm still a, an agreement that that is a good idea, and I think I would be more than willing to contribute to, su to, to something such, such as that. But it's not a, it can't be an off-the-shelf type of solution for implementation, and every organization would have to customize. 
Yeah, yeah, you yeah, agreed 100%. Um, I mean, I guess when we were thinking about it, we, we, we were then after, kind of once we were in the, the heat of this implementation, we were saying, well, how easy would it actually be to um, now change your cash flows um, into in, in, onto the same technology? And I guess where, where at least I landed was, well, it would be very useful if you just had the basics. Yeah, because you, I mean, you can, you're then going to customize it for whatever product features you have. But to start from scratch with no basics is actually a lot of effort. Um, and, and it's probably not feasible within an F17 type of, of, of implementation. Whereas if we had that basic core as a profession, I think it all of a sudden does become feasible. It's now an option that you can put on the table. Okay, I think we can probably take one more question um, at the back there. Hi, I'm a lady from Liberty. Um, just in terms of the conversation that's going around, there is actually an asset systems and technology committee. So it might be worthwhile engaging um, in terms of the actual libraries and the setups and all of that with them. Cool. cool. Thanks. Okay, we're more or less out of time. Um, thank you very much, everybody. Thanks to our presenters for a very enlightening session and to everyone for the discussion. And the next session is a plenary in the ballroom starting at 10.30. There is only travel time. There isn't time for a refreshment break, but we have given you a few spare minutes. Um, so enjoy the rest of the day.